United States Supreme Court rejects the request to lift the federal ban on evictions. The CDC's moratorium on evictions looks to expire at the end of July. And Washington State passes a slew of new laws to address the landlord-tenant requirements in response to COVID-19. This is the Late Night Legal Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Paul Boudreaux. I am the owner and operator of Late Night Legal PLLC in the state of Washington. I've been licensed in the state of Washington for over six years now, and I have general practice experience in many areas, but particularly in the last few years, I've started doing much more property, real estate, and transactional law as well as litigation on behalf of landlords and tenants. In addition to many of the things that I like to do in my spare time, I oftentimes like to follow the news of the Supreme Court and how it tracks and relates to society. I'm presenting this information just as a general update for people who are curious about what the state of affairs is when it comes to landlord-tenant rights, the eviction moratoriums, and the Supreme Court's response to all of these issues. First, we're going to start with the Supreme Court's rejection of the request to lift the federal ban on the CDC imposition for the eviction moratorium. Um, Last week, the Supreme Court refused to remove the Center for Disease Control Program and Prevention in response to the coronavirus pandemic. This was a 5-4 decision with Chief Chief Justices Roberts, Stevens, Breyers, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Kavanaugh in the majority. The court gave no reason for its ruling, which is typical when it comes to an emergency application, but Justice Kavanaugh did issue a brief concurring opinion explaining that he cast his vote reluctantly and had taken into account the impending expiration of the moratorium. Justice Kavanaugh went on to explicitly state that there would be a need for clear and specific congressional authorizations for the CDC moratorium to extend past July 31st. When looking at the requests in this case, the challengers of the underlying case from the lower courts asked the higher court to understand that the CDC essentially shifted the pandemic's financial burdens from the nation's 30 to 40 million renters onto about 10 to 11 million landlords, most of whom, like applicants, were individuals and small businesses, resulting in over $13 billion in unpaid rents per month. The total cost to the national landlords, they wrote, could approach somewhere to $200 billion. The moratorium defers but does not cancel the obligation to pay the rent. Challengers wrote that this massive wealth transfer would never fully be undone. Many renters, they wrote, will never be able to pay back what they owe. In reality, they wrote the eviction moratorium has been an instrument of economic policy rather than for disease control. In urging the Supreme Court to leave the moratorium in place, the government said that continued vigilance against the spread of the coronavirus was needed and noted that Congress had appropriated tens of billions of dollars to pay for renters' arrearage. This is just the lack of payment is what arrearage is. The challengers argued that the moratorium was not authorized by the law that the agency relied on, specifically the Public Health Services Act of 1944. The 1944 law, the challengers wrote, 
Concerned with quarantines and inspections to stop the spread of disease and did not bestow the agency the unqualified power to take measure imaginable to stop the spread of communicable diseases, whether eviction moratorium, worship limits, nationwide lockdown, school closures, or vaccine mandates. CDC argued that the moratorium was authorized by the 1944 Act and that evictions would accelerate the spread of the coronavirus. The case was complicated by congressional action in December when lawmakers briefly extended the CDC's moratorium through the end of January in an appropriations measure when Congress took no further action. The agency again imposed moratoriums under the 1944 law. In a Supreme Court brief, the government argued that it was significant that Congress had embraced the agency's action, if only briefly. And uh, within the last month, federal district court in Washington ruled that the agency had exceeded its powers in issuing the moratorium. The question for the court is a narrow one. Does the Public Health Services Act grant the CDC the legal authority to impose a nationwide eviction moratorium? It does not. That is what the federal lower court stated. Now, when we're talking about this moratorium, it's important to understand that these stopgap measures have inhibited or in legalese we would call it, it has encumbered the owners of the property to not be able to alienate their property for profit. This is one of the, in property law, we call it a bundle of sticks. And whether you are um, philosophically aligned with that notion, that is a well-recognized rule in American common law is that one of the bundles of sticks that you have is the right to exclude people and the right to exploit lawfully your own property for your own benefit. And so this is a long-held constitutional right that the corona pandemic has led legislatures to try to impose and indeed uh, prevent actions taken by uh, lawful citizens within the United States. If you look locally here to the United here in the state of Washington, there is estimates, according to the Seattle Times, of nearly 168,000 people in Washington households that are behind on their rent payments. That is as uh, going back to April 15th, 2021. I've heard other numbers that says that the, the actual figure could be closer to 268,000 people within the state of Washington. Now there have been uh, several bills that have passed in the state of Washington, but I think it's important to understand how a bill actually becomes a law in the state of Washington, which is slightly different than what happens at the federal uh, level, but it is very, very similar. A bill is introduced on either the House or the Senate by a member. It's referred to a committee. The committee reviews the bill. The committee creates a report on the bill and is read in open session of the House or Senate. The Rules Committee can either place the bill on the second reading calendar for debate before the entire body or take no action. At the second reading, the bill is subject to debate and amendment processes before being placed on the third reading calendar for final passage. After one house, the bill goes to the other house, so either house or Senate and vice versa. If amendments are made in those other houses, say it was originally brought in the House and then it goes to the Senate and there's an amendment to the first house, that would be the House of Representatives or Commons, under the par parliamentary rules would have to approve the changes. When the bill is accepted in both houses, it is signed by the respective leaders and sent to the governor. Here's the key difference here is that the governor signs the bill into law and may veto all or part of it. If the governor, if the governor fails to act on the bill, it may become law without a signature. So in 2019, 
there were already changes to the United States, or sorry, not the United States, but Washington State's landlord-tenant and eviction laws. So the uh, Washington's Landlord-Tenant Act, or the Residential Landlord-Tenant Act, RCW Chapter 5918, this is the process that governs what is commonly known as the eviction process. And just the legal term for that in the state of Washington is known as unlawful detainer, as defined in RCW 5912. Both laws changed in major ways in June 11th of 2020. And Washington lawmakers covering tenants and landlords had to look and see what these new changes are. Tenant usually had to pay any deposit and moving costs all before they moved into their new rental. The landlord did not have to accept partial payment or payment plans. It was very hard for many ten tenants to afford without this. Starting in June, starting on June 11, 2020, tenants had the right to pay certain upfront fees and an installment payment, i.e. payment plan, instead of all at once. If they ask the landlord in writing, tenants can now pay these move-in costs in installments. <clears throat> including deposits, non-refundable fees, and last month's rent. The payment plan must be in writing. Tenant and landlords must both sign it, and if the rental agreement is three months or longer, a tenant can ask for a payment plan for three monthly equal payments. If the rental agreement is less than three months, a tenant can ask for a payment plan of two monthly equal payments. Payments must start at the beginning of the tenancy and are due on the same day as rent. A landlord, notably, can only turn down a tenant's written request for an installment plan if the total deposits and non-refundable fees are not more than 25% of the first month's rent and the landlord is not asking for last month's rent. So that's kind of a complicated formula. So if you are either a landlord or tenant, you'll need to sit down and crunch those numbers and determine whether or not your actual offer is um, available. It's also important to note that new laws were passed in 2019 as well. A new law in 2019 limited evictions for non-payment to rent. Rent in 2019 included recurring monthly charges such as utility bills. The law changed in 2019 to give tenants more time to pay what they owed in rent from three days to 14 days. So before 2019, if you didn't pay your rent, you would get a three-day notice to vacate or termination of tenancy. Tenant tenancy. And... Um, you could go through the unlawful detainer process, which is a process that simply determines who owns or occupies the property. It doesn't determine damages usually. And so if your rent was due on the third, you could get, and you didn't pay by the fourth, on the fourth, you could get a three-day notice of intention to uh, pay rent or vacate. And if you didn't pay your rent within those three days, the following week, you could be scheduled for a calendar before a judge, usually a commissioner, um, and usually on a Friday in the state of Washington. Most courts do them on Fridays. Um, now it is a 14-day notice. So now if you don't pay rent, you have to give 14 days notice if the tenant has not paid and owed within 14 days. Then, and only then, can an eviction for unlawful detainer actually commence. In 2020, the law changed again. Rent now also includes money owed on deposit installment payments. A tenant who misses a payment on deposit installments can plan to be served with a 14-day notice to pay or vacate. Same as if the tenant didn't pay rent, and if the tenant does not pay what is owed, the installment payment, within 14 days, the landlord may file for eviction. Up until June 11th, 2020, a landlord could start charging a tenant late fees the day after rent was owed. 
Um, starting on June 11th, 2020, a landlord cannot charge a late fee until the rent is five days late. That is a significant change. A landlord can give a tenant 14 notice to pay or vacate any day after the, the rent is due. Um, other changes that uh, tenants can look to. <clears throat> Does tenants actually have a right to ask to change the date in which rent is owed? Um, as of June 11th, 2020, a landlord must agree to change the day rent is due up to five days if the tenant asks in writing and the tenant's main source of income is government assistance that is received after the rental due date. Government assistance can be TAMP, ABD, Social Security, Veterans Benefits, and so on. So if you are someone who receives these type of aids and your current date on due dates is not coalescing with when you would like to make your payments, you can ask in writing to have that change. Um, <clears throat> landlords now do not have to accept cash rent payments. Up until June 11th, 2020, a landlord had to accept cash for any payment of rent. Starting in June 11th, 2020, a landlord can refuse to accept cash for rent payments. A landlord who does not accept cash must give the tenant a receipt. Landlords must still give a receipt for rent payments made in any other form if the tenant asks for a receipt. So best practices here is always give a receipt as a landlord, no matter how the payment comes, and know that you do not have to accept cash necessarily. Also, if a landlord serves a 14-day notice to pay or vacate, the landlord can no longer ask the tenant to pay what is owed in cash unless the rental agreement says you must pay cash. Further changes, landlords must accept payments from co-ops with rental assistance organizations. Starting in June 11, 2020, landlords must accept pledges from rental assistance program. A landlord must now work with rental assistance programs so that the program can give landlords the pledge of money. More tenants will now be able to catch up with rent through help of charities and other agencies under this law. A landlord's duty to accept pledges from a rental assistance program depends on where the tenant is in the eviction process. When a landlord serves a pay or vacate notice, the landlord must accept a pledge only for the full amount of rent owed. A landlord can refuse a pledge for anything less. A landlord can refuse a combination of pledges and money. After the 14-day period ends, a landlord must accept even a pledge that only covers part of the tenant must pay to reinstate the tenancy and stay in their home, including back rent up to $75 in late fees, costs, and attorney's fees. The landlord must accept payment that comes from a combination of pledges. Once the landlord gives the rental assistance program what it needs, the landlords must stop the eviction process for seven days so the organizations can pay the pledged amounts. This is supposed to give bargaining tools to tenants who are receiving perhaps federal aids from the recent um, federal funds that have been distributed to states. Now moving into 2021, additional changes have been made. The Washington State Legislature adopted significant changes to the state's landlord-tenant laws, and here's a brief summary, and then we'll get into some specifics. Standards for rent payment plans during the eviction moratorium set, set to expire at the end of this month now. People who are behind because of COVID-19 crisis, a reasonable repayment plan based on individual circumstances must be offered. Once the moratorium ends, landlords must offer a reasonable schedule for repayment for monthly payments of no more than one-third of the monthly rent. 
There is now an eviction resolution pilot program. In some counties, landlords are required to provide tenants notice of the availability of an eviction resolution pilot program. This program is supposed to help renters and landlords agree how to make up rent instead of going to court and also help tenants find rent assistance. Tenants with low income may get a lawyer. The legislature is funding legal service providers to help more tenants in eviction cases. Subject to funding, the court must appoint a lawyer to indigent tenants in a filed eviction case. A person is indigent if they receive public assistance or their annual income after taxes is 200% or below the federal poverty guidelines. This program may take up to a year to be fully implemented. Landlords must give a good reason for ending the rental agreement and evicting tenants. Landlords must give a tenant a written notice with one of 17 good reasons, or what we would refer to as four cause reasons, for ending a rental agreement, and we'll talk about the specific of those later. Um, among the things, uh, landlords can no longer refuse to renew month-to-month agreements for no reason with a 20-day no-cause termination notice. So before, you could just do a notice to terminate tenancy. That has now effectually gone away. In addition to the laws that have been passed, the state of Washington Office of Governor Jay Inslee passed the Proclamation 21-09, a bridge to E2-SSB-5160, that is the uh, current Senate bill that had recently been passed but was partially vetoed. The governor stated that as a result of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, it is amending the former proclamation 20-05 to temporarily impose certain prohibitions and shall continue to preserve residential tenancy until 11.59 p.m. on September 30th, 2021. It is the intent of the order to bridge the operational gap between the eviction moratorium enacted by prior proclamations and protections and programs subsequently enacted by the legislature and to reduce uncertainty as the state implements post-COVID-19 long-term housing recovery strategies contained in legislative enactments such as ES E2SSB 5160. To the end, any ambiguities contained in the proclamation shall be resolved by applying the process, timeliness, and definitions previously established by that legislation. Really, this stopgap measure dealt with past owed rent that states if based in whole or in part on any arrearage rent owed that accrued during COVID-19 from February 29th to July 31st, 2021, landlords, property owners, and property managers, collectively landlords are prohibited from serving or enforcing or threatening to serve or enforce any notice requiring a tenant to vacate any dwelling included but not limited to an eviction notice, notice to pay rent or vacate, unlawful detainer summons, or complaint, notice of termination of rental, or notice to comply or vacate until both, one, a rental assistance program and an eviction resolution pilot program, as contemplated by Section 7 of E2SSB 5160, have been implemented and operational in the county. And two, a tenant has been provided with and has since the effective date of the order rejected or failed to respond within 14 days receipt of such notice to an opportunity to participate in an operational rental assistance program and an operational eviction resolution pilot program. Essentially, this is stating that 
landlords have to give notice of any rental program, have to give at least a 14-day requirement for these uh, tenants who are in arrearage, who have not paid rent, to engage in these programs. And only after they fail to exhaust these administrative remedies can someone sue. This will increase the timelines that prospective landlords will have to try and get their uh, the property occupation back within their um, control. So their locus of control on the property is going to be limited for an even longer extended period of time when it comes to this. Now, if there are rents that are accruing on August 1st, 2021, so starting next month or thereafter, it is the expectation that tenants will pay rent in full, negotiate a lesser amount or payment plan with land tenant with the tenant's landlord, or actively seek rental assistance if assistance is needed for rent accruing on August 1st, 2021 or thereafter. And unless an exception or other state law allows for eviction, landlords are prohibited from serving or enforcing or threatening to serve or enforce any notice requiring to vacate including but not limited to any of the ones noted before with the same conditions. Uh, essentially, the state of Washington is limiting the ability to fully evict anyone without restrictions until September 30th, 2021, if not later, assuming that it doesn't extend. Now, Not only is that difficult to deal with for property owners, but there are other provisions that make it very difficult when uh, seeking to rent. We will talk about those momentarily. Given the significant nature that the final bill of ES, E2SSB5160, that is the Senate Bill 5160 that was signed into law, I think it's important to go over just the totality and in-depth nature of the Senate and housing proposal that has now been enacted. To reiterate, as repetition is the mother of skill, as many of my students know, the Residential Landlord Tenant Act regulates the creation of residential tenancies and the relationships between landlords and tenants of residential dwelling units. The RLTA establishes rights and duties of both tenants and landlords, procedures for the parties to enforce those rights, how and when tenancy expires or may be terminated, and remedies for violation of the RLTA. In the 2019-2020 biennium, the legislature enacted several reforms covering a wide variety of issues governing the landlord-tenant relationship, including modifying how rent is defined and how and when landlords can apply tenants' payments to rents or other costs and non-possessory fees, providing uniform 14-day notice to pay or vacate with an updated summons form for landlords to use when the tenant fails to pay rent, 
modifying the tenancy reinstatement process with limits on fees before a judgment is issued during an unlawful detainer action, establishing how and when judges can exercise judicial discretion to stay a writ of restitution after judgment in cases involving non-payment of rent. Prohibiting access to such judicial discretion if a tenant is issued three 14-day notices to pay or vacate within a prior 12-month period and requiring landlords to accept any pledge of emergency rental assistance funds provided to the tenant from a governmental or nonprofit entity before the notice to pay or vacate for non-payment of rent expires and to suspend any court action for seven court days after they provide necessary payment information from the nonprofit NGO entity to allow payment for the assistant funds. As far as the governor's eviction moratorium, as previously stated on March 18, 2020, Governor Inslee issued Proclamation 20-19 to prohibit a number of activities related to evictions for all residential landlords operating residential property in the state of Washington. Since then, that's been extended through June 30th, June 30th, 2021, and was recently updated to the end of this month, the end of July. The eviction moratorium prohibited many things, serving or enforcing threatening documentation, any notice requiring a resident to vacate any dwelling or parcel land of occupied, except for a 60-day notice of intent to sell. That's essentially the only exception. The current moratorium also prohibits assessing or threatening any late fees for non-payment of rent from charges from February 29th, 2020 to present, retaliating against individuals for invoking their rights of protection under the moratorium or any other state or federal law prohibiting rights of the protections for residential dwellings. It also prevented or prohibited assessing or threatening to assess rent or other charges for any period during which the resident's access to or occupancy of the dwelling was prevented as a result of COVID-19 treating any unpaid rent or other charges as enforceable debt obligation that is collectible for non-payment of rent. Failure to provide reasonable payment plan under the moratorium is a defense to any lawsuit or any other attempts to collect. A landlord may engage in customary and routine communications with residents of dwelling or a parcel land occupied as dwelling. Within these communications, landlords may provide information to residents regarding financial resources, including coordinating with residents to apply for state or other rental assistance programs. The moratorium strongly encourages landlords and tenants to access services offered at existing dispute resolution centers to try to come to an agreement of repayment. Um, the Senate bill also enacts the previously mentioned eviction resolution pilot program, but that could take a year to implement, and we're not really sure where that's going to lead. Once a landlord and tenant voluntarily enter into the ERP process, specialists will work with both parties and external partners to resolve the issue of non-payment and future payments. If result, resolution cannot be achieved, formal mediation will be offered to the landlords and tenants at no cost. So they say the ERP process can be initiated by either the landlord or the tenant without service of a 14 day notice. If the tenant initiates or responds to a notice, the landlord is obligated to participate in the process. Once the governor's eviction moratorium and any of its amendments or extensions expire, the ERP will require landlords to engage in pre-litigation conciliation efforts prior to filing an unlawful detainer action. There is no mention about what happens if either party does not show up, um, and that could constitute an instance of mediation bad faith. 
As previously stated, legal representation for indigent persons, both the federal and state constitutions contains guarantee of the right to legal representation for an accused person in a criminal prosecutions. Court decisions at both fates, at both federal and state levels have construed these provisions to require public funding of indigent legal representation in criminal prosecutions in which their liberty is at stake. However, statutes and court decisions have also extended the right to publicly funded counsel to other cases such as involuntary commitments, dependencies, and juvenile case, cases. A determination of indigency has to be found by the court. There is no federal or state guaranteed right to legal representation for indigent tenants in the unlawful detainer evictions, but a few cities in the country implement some of the right to legal counsel services for tenants, including most recently in the city of Seattle. Uh, there's also what's known as the Office of Civil Legal Aid, OCLA, for anyone searching for help there. In addition to other rights, the payment of rent into the court registry, the RTLA, includes an additional optional notice for landlords to use when the unlawful detainer action is based on tenants' non-payment of rent. If this form is also served, the tenant must either pay the amount of rent allegedly due and owed to the court registry or file a sworn statement denying and set forth reasons the rent is owing. If the tenant fails to do one or the other, the landlord is entitled to obtain an immediate writ of restitution without further notice and without paying a bond. The tenant may seek a hearing on the merits and immediately stay the writ, but must provide the court the landlord is not must prove to the court that the landlord is not entitled to possession of the property based on certain legal and equitable defenses. There's also references to the Dispute Resolution Center, the Landlord Mitigation Program, which is supposed to allow landlords to seek reimbursement for claims mitigating their uh, private market risks for low-income housing. That program offers up to $1,000 in reimbursements to landlords for potentially required move-in upgrades up to 14 days of lost rental income and up to $5,000 in unpaid rent utilities qualifying damages by tenants during the tenancy. So landlords might look to the landlord mitigation program there. Now, the repayment plans. If a tenant has a remaining unpaid rent accrued between March 1st, 2020 and six months following the expiration of the governor's eviction moratorium. So six months after expiration of the moratorium currently set to expire at the end of this month. And whichever is greater, the landlord must offer tenants a reasonable schedule for repayment of the unpaid rent that does not exceed monthly payments equal to one third of monthly rental charges owed. If the tenant fails to accept the terms of the reasonable payment plan within 14 days of the offer, then the landlord may proceed with an unlawful detainer action subject to any requirement under the ERP. So that is the uh, resolution program. If the tenant defaults on any rent owed under a payment plan, the landlord may apply for reimbursement from the LMP or proceed with an unlawful detainer action subject to any requirement under the ERP. During any unlawful detainer proceeding, the court must consider the tenant's circumstances, including any decreased income or increased expenses due to COVID-19 and the repayment plan terms offered during the unlawful detainer proceeding. It is a defense to unlawful detainer action if the landlord did not offer a repayment plan. So if you are a landlord or you are a tenant, know that a payment plan must be offered or there is an absolute defense to unlawful detainer. The action would be dismissed and they would have to offer said plan and then reapply. 
The tenant and landlord may continue to seek rental assistance to reduce or eliminate any unpaid rent balance to the extent available of funds exist for public, private, nonprofit rental assistance programs. Any program entitled uh, plan entered into by the landlord and tenant must begin no sooner than 30 days after the plan is offered, cover rent only and not legal fees, late fees, or other charges, allow for payment from any source of income, including benefits, assistance programs, subsidy programs, or other pledges. It must not include provisions or conditions on the tenant's compliance with the rental agreement, payments of attorney's fees, court costs, or other costs related to litigation if the tenant defaults on the agreement, requirement that the tenant apply for or provide proof of receipt of government benefits, and the tenant's waiver of any rights to an unlawful detainer notice or related provisions before a writ of restitution is entered. So it cannot prove cannot be conditioned on any of those three provisions. So a repayment plan cannot have those three subsections. So they can't waive rights, can't require proof that the tenant apply for governmental benefits, which is very odd. And the tenant, the tenant's compliance with the rental agreement payment of attorney's fees, court costs, or other related litigation fees. There is additional mention, once again, to the Landlord Mitigation Program, and it requires, it articulates the $15,000 limits that are required. <clears throat> the large changes, or I would say the largest change when it comes to um, all of these provisions, I think, has to do with the fact that, um, you know, there's been an added provision for damages for violation of these provisions. And I think the, the big change here that people are going to want to um, really focus on in the future is All right, I'm trying to find exactly where it states here in the report. Yeah. So the biggest change, and this will be really important to note, um, any landlord or prospective landlord in violation of the aforementioned prohibitions and requirements, so that is um, any of the violations of the Residential Landlord Tenant Act as far as violating the governor's moratorium, sending unlawful notices or by failing to evict for cause from a month to month tenancy. Um, the biggest violation or the biggest change here is that the prospective landlord would be liable for two and one half times the monthly rent of court costs and attorney's fees. The court must determine the penalty amount in order to deter future violations. So if any of the provisions that are outlined in 
the E2 SSB 5160. There is a potential liability for two and one half times a monthly rent. So if you have a $2,000 a month rent, there could be $5,000 in damages plus court costs, which is probably going to be several hundred dollars and attorney's fees, which could be thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars. I have seen reasonable attorney's fees for tens of thousands of dollars on cases that are only valued at maybe five or $6,000. So this is a huge monetary litigation risk that has really upended the uh, unlawful detainer process in the state of Washington. So not only do landlords have to expatiate and endure all of the longer processes. So we've gone from a pre-2019 three-day notice to vacate and terminate tenancy to upwards of 14 days for just initiation of that process, which could be delayed for a seven additional days if there is an a ERP or if there's seeking applications for um, you know, third parties payment um, from any of the previously mentioned institutions. And so what landlords are going to have to do is revamp all of their contracts. Essentially, if you are a landlord in the state of Washington, you need to re-examine your contracts. If you are a tenant, you need to understand that your rights have significantly altered in the last year and that your landlords must strictly follow all of these procedures in order to evict you. This is uh, really going to change the dynamics of housing in the state of Washington in ways that I think are uh, the negative externalities of this are really going to be hard to fathom when it comes to the supply and demand side of housing because it's going to make being a landlord much more expensive. So because there's there's increased litigation risk that I think people are underappreciating in the current markets. And so the actual ability to be an effective landlord is going to be much more onerous. And now there's much higher litigation risks. Now there is a the biggest thing is the timetables, right? Because the mortgages, there currently is no state or federal mortgage relief directly that a there's no procedures here that a landlord has to defer the foreclosure actions of banks. Essentially, banking institutions can call their loans or if they get behind on payments can make it very difficult for landlords to repay that. It's important to know that you know there are certain redemption rights if they're sharing a property. And so there might be a right of redemption where people could repay these. So the payment plans might help to function to do that. But for uh, larger institutions that are doing these, there's going to be significant increases in risk. This is gonna make housing very difficult in the state of Washington for a number of reasons. Number one, um, the real estate market in and of itself has gone crazy. There's, we've seen in upwards of 96% growth in the last four years in certain markets, including the one that I currently live in. In addition to that, there are three concurrent condominium acts in the state of Washington. And why is that important? That's important because I have dealt with litigation in the condominium act and it makes creating and being a part of condominiums and HOAs exceedingly difficult because there are three statutory frameworks that you have to deal with and that could be applicable depending on when your collective covenants and restrictions were filed and that type of that type of uh, restriction is going to 
complicate the fact that so multi-housing or condominium based construction is going to be difficult if you're doing single family home development that's exceedingly difficult because the price of timber has skyrocketed as well as single price single family homes prices have skyrocketed so it's going to make the supply side uh, even more onerous the Landlords are now going to have to find ways to insulate themselves from litigation risk. So they're going to have to raise rents in response to this, or, or they don't have to, but they are most likely the logical conclusion will be that they will raise rents because of this. And so for all of those reasons, these changes will create watershed movements in the state of Washington that I don't think we're going to fully realize for several years. And it's only after we have answers to many questions, because all of these questions are now without precedent. We now have several new laws, all of these different restrictions, um, and even some consternation from the United States Supreme Court showing that they don't necessarily like all of these laws. And so the Legal field when it comes to landlord, tenants, and property ownership, both federally and in the state of Washington, are in very much in flux. And that is why it will be necessary for both landlords and tenants to be fully apprised of their rights. And I hope that this information is the first step that people use to enact their rights. If you would like to have a legal consultation with me at any point in the future, you can call my firm, 253-656-4475. You can check out my website at late night with a K, K N I G H T, late night legal, P L L C. It's late night legal.com. Um, and I look forward to providing any updates in the law as it develops. Thank you for tuning in. This has been the Late Night Podcast.